You know, I, I clearly remember the uh, reception at our wedding, Deb's and my wedding, like it was yesterday, like 34 years ago. Debbie and I arrived at the hall fashionably late following the ceremony that had gone on earlier in the day. The guests were already there um, waiting for the bride and bridegroom's arrival. They were ready to party. They were ready to get at it. Once we got there, the, uh, the MC for the evening announced our arrival amid a course of cheering and, of course, the woot woots. Our wedding feast was about to begin. There was another wedding that comes to mind, and at this wedding, all the history of Middle Earth has culminated into the final scene. Battles have been fought, victories claimed, the evil armies have been defeated, the wicked overlord has been judged, and the blood of the slain has been avenged. The king is is crowned as Gandalf announces, now come the days of the king. Then the scene shifts to the bride being presented to the bridegroom, Aragorn, and the cheering and the celebration and the feasting begins and the woot wooten happens again. Certainly, I have to tell you, it's a little more intense than what happened at Debbie's in my wedding. But I have to say that in some ways, in many ways, in fact, we see these pictures in what is to come one day, but not in a fantasy tale this time, nor in a tidy little wedding reception and mission, British Columbia, but in a very real time-spanned universal reality. An, actual, an actuality. All the history, you see, culminates in a meal. The meal is the great marriage supper of the Lamb. What's happened now is that the beast and his armies have been defeated. The great prostitute has been judged. The blood of the martyrs has been avenged. And all of heaven rejoices because the church, his bride, is prepared and ready. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Finally, church. And he, the king, Jesus is worthy to rule and reign and receive all the glory of all creation. In his vision in Revelation, John saw and heard the heavenly multitudes praising God because the wedding feast of the Lamb, literally the marriage supper, was about to begin. Now to help us to understand a little bit better maybe of the concept of this marriage supper, I think it's best understood in light of the wedding customs at the time of Christ. Because he would have drawn from a lot of what was happening in his world so that they could better understand. Marriages in biblical times were arranged by the parents and typically initiated by the father of the groom. Imagine if we did that today. Woot, woot. Maybe not. When the father found a prospective bride, actually, by the way, I kind of like that idea. When they found a prospective bride, he'd send his son, the bridegroom, to the home of the bride to offer his father's Uh, a bride price, or her father, a bride price. I mean, the best my dad did was uh, that he took Debbie's mom and dad out for fish and chips in Abbotsford. The bride price was a way for the groom to demonstrate that he was financially capable. He had it together. He had a bank account. He had some means of providing for all the needs of the bride. That's important, of course. In fact, think about this. We tie this into and you see where this applies in Scripture. Galatians 4.4 says that when the fullness of time came, what did God do? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. The bride price. You and I are the bride that the Father has sent a son for. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. 
Okay, so once the bride price was offered, the couple would be betrothed, similar to what we would today call the engagement, except it would be an engagement with some serious commitment. It's like an engagement on steroids. I mean, it's a pretty big deal. That's because it could only be broken by a divorce. This arrangement, by the way, was what Joseph and Mary had been uh, in when she was found to be with child. Now, having been being betrothed now, the couple were considered, for all intents and purposes, husband and wife, except in one important matter, and that would be at this point, they would continue to live in separate households until the wedding ceremony. They were not to know each other intimately. This, at this point, they were to remain exclusively set apart, though, for each other, but just not intimate with each other. Father of the bride, in fact, he would make sure that that she would remain a virgin, that she would remain pure, because at this point, he was assuming full responsibility for presenting the bride in purity to her husband. Guess what, church? You can actually see this expressed about us, the, the church, the bride of Christ, in Jude one twenty four, where it says that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before him blameless. See how that ties in? After the betrothal, the groom would return to his father's home to prepare this new home for his bride. In John 1.14, do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples? He said, in my father's house are, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'd go to what? To prepare a place for you, for the bride. Now, what is interesting is that it isn't up to the groom to decide when the accommodations were ready for his bride, when all of this was going to take place, that decision was his father's. Do you remember what the disciples asked Jesus when they asked him about the timing of his return? What did he say? He said, no one knows the day nor the hour, not even the son, only the father knows. Hmm. Now, when the time did come, when the father gave the green light, the groom would lead a procession to the home of his bride and he would be making this big announcement. He'd be shouting in the streets with his friends, making a bunch of noise with trumpets and shouting out that he was going to claim her and inviting his friends to meet back at his father's house for the wedding feast. By the way, you see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as well. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God. It's a big deal. So what would happen is then when all of that would begin to take place, the bride would, with her friends, her handmaidens, would join the parade and they end up at the bridegroom's home. Couple would then go back to his father's house for the ceremony and feast. And what they called that was the presentation where the pure bride, remember she's pure at this point, was presented faultless and with great joy and celebration. And so what would happen is now, when the guests saw the bride, they'd praise and they would honor her and they'd praise and honor the groom, which I'm sure included a lot of woot woots. Good, you're catching on. And then the wedding supper would begin, sometimes lasting for days, as was the case of the wedding at uh, Cana. So now let's return, after explaining all of that, let's return back to the marriage supper of the Lamb that we find in Revelation 19. And by the way, it is still an event that's going to happen in the future. We're still looking forward to that with anticipation. But when it does happen, it promises church to be a great and a, and a glorious time. A time when all things are made right and, and good and, and perfect and, and, and pure. But that day's not today. I mean, after all, all is not right in our world today, is it? It's certainly not all right in our lives. Uh, reality confronts us every time we listen to the daily news report, open our email, 
look at social media, or even for that matter, when you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror. The nations continue to rage, the wicked prosper, and the righteous suffer. Our loved ones still get sick, and, and many of them die. Our, our friends disappoint us. I mean, for that matter, we disappoint ourselves. Our bodies deteriorate, our hearts grow discouraged, and our daily struggle against sin seems, oh man, it seems like such a losing effort at times. Sometimes, especially in Canada, it seems like it's always winter and never Christmas. We grieve and weep in the present, but we also love and laugh and rejoice. So we have that. Life is more than rainy days and hospital visits and funerals. It's much more than that. We attend weddings and baby showers. We enjoy the company of dear friends. We celebrate birthdays with the perfectly cooked steak and, and savor Nanaimo bars aplenty. With family gathered for holidays, we cheer when our team wins the championship. We marvel when we hear Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, don't we? Yeah. You know what those, these are? These are all common grace joys that believers and non-believers alike experience. But what they do is they point to the goodness of God's creation and his kindness to his cre uh, creatures, to us, all of us. No, and, and, and we know this, that every colorful sunset and delicious butter tart is a pointer to God, the one who made the sun and the fruit trees and the, gave us eyes and hands and taste buds to enjoy these gifts. They point to God. Here's the thing, church. I think we as Christians, those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, we who are followers of the King, we, we grasp the essential biblical truth that the Lord himself is to be always the object of our joy. He alone satisfies these weary souls, these tough days, these messy instances that we find ourselves in with his steadfast love and his goodness. Which is why when we gather as a church, we will eagerly and continue to remind ourselves uh, to look forward to the day when Jesus and his people will spend eternity together in a kingdom where, where all things are made new, when they're made right. But it's not the newness that we're going to focus on. Think about this. It's, not, it's just not, though that's going to be far more amazing than we could ever hope to imagine, believe you me. It's not going to be the streets of gold the gates of jewels. Yeah, we're going to look at those things. They're going to be, wow, these are fantastic. It's not going to be the tree of life or the end of night. Our future focus and our eternal joy will be in God himself. If Jesus isn't in heaven, I don't want to go. But when I get to spend eternity with Jesus, that's what it's all about, church. I think that's the picture that we get to see as we come to Revelation 19, as, as heaven just erupts with joy. See that in that passage? It's not about the shiny new digs and the cool robes we get to wear, but God. So let's go back to Revelation 19 and look at this passage. And as we do, just know and understand, please, that this is not just some fancy parable. Certainly not a fantasy novel. It's not a myth or allegory or fairy tale about the future days that we can just kind of take when we're feeling down and stick in our back pocket to make us feel better at any given time. Rather, this is a hope and a promise about our very real future realities. In fact, I, I don't know if you realize this, uh, that John was given this an accurate vision about what was to be. Now, it may be hard for us to completely understand what he saw, but in that vision, he saw actual real faces of many of the future guests at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Here, I don't know. I mean, this is, 
just a guess, but imagine that he possibly might've seen some of our faces, might've seen yours in that vision. But it doesn't matter. I mean, whether he did or not see your face, if you're a disciple of Jesus's and you're a member of his church, the universal church of Jesus Christ, if you're his bride, you can know that you are among those who said the words in Revelation 19 verses one and two. So you might as well memorize them now because you're going to be saying them then. Where John said, after this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, and by the way, this is us saying it in eternity, in the future, saying, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. By the way, this word hallelujah, it only appears four times in the New Testament. But it, hallelujah means praise the Lord. And all four times in the New Testament is used right here, right in chapter 19. John's wanting to make a point, I think. And, and what he's hearing is, is, is something that, that uh, uh, has deep, deep meaning. We see this praise being expressed these four times here, culminating in the great marriage of the Lamb. Right here in verses 1 and 2, we see that heaven rejoices because God's people have been saved and God's glory and power have been put on display. He's brought justice to bear on the wicked, blood-drunken harlot. It shows us that God's judgments, church, this is what it does. It shows us that his judgments are true. They're righteous. And I think even, even deeper is that they are inescapable, and that the blood of every martyr is going to be avenged. In other words, it's going to all work out in the end. It'll all make sense, and it'll work out. God's righteousness wins in the end. That's why the church says, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And with God, his judgment, by the way, isn't some kind of over- emotional reaction, like when I've overreacted in the past with one of my kids for not mowing the lawn when they haven't done it within my time frame or done it according to the way I like to have them do it. They haven't fit my schedule. No, God is, is, is a righteous, uh, deserves specific and pure type of justice. His is a good justice, which means then that there will be a deep, complete, and a, and a satisfying sense of, of, of real rejoicing, which we'll experience in heaven when the wickedness of evil is judged with finality. It'll be deep and it'll be so real. Well, he continues on, John continues on in verse three, and he says a second time, they can't help themselves. That's us, by the way. We can't help ourselves when we're in, at the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And they said, hallelujah, a second time. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. This emphasis here seems to be on the decisive and unending nature of God's justice. Here's what that means. Never again will uh, evil and rebellion against God rise up to offend his glory and torment his servants ever. The rebellion of sin is finally ended. Hallelujah, right? That means we'll never have to worry about sinning again. Isn't that great? I mean, have you ever been frustrated by those demanding sins in your life? The ones that seem to keep popping up again and again? The ones that require you to repent often? And 
or even those ones that pop up in other people's lives that which cause you to learn to forgive freely and extend grace continually. We keep learning, don't we? About how to repent often, forgive freely, extend grace continually, and love fully while we're here on earth. I mean, I certainly have those kinds of sins in my life. And if you're honest with, with each other, I'm pretty sure we all have those here at the church. But listen, church, at the marriage feast, we will finally and forever be free from those sins. In fact, all sin. Because we'll be free from the very presence of sin. We'll be completely sanctified. And this is expressed in the imagery John uses when he says that the smoke of sin's destruction continually rises forever and ever. He's letting us know that it's an ongoing reality. Sin is forever destroyed. He, he's, uh, the presence of sin will be irreversibly eliminated, which means that we're now released to worship like never before in the history of mankind. It, we get to worship like nobody's business. And you see this reflected in verses four and five. Look at verses four and five. Then the 24 elders... And the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen. And what did they say again? Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. You know, I I think it's important for us to understand this church. Everybody worships, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer. Doesn't matter. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Now, the problem with, the, with that, though, is that if you worship money and things, if, you, if, if they're where you tap into for real meaning of life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. Worship your body and, and, and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel inadequate. You'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, well, then, whoa, you're going to die a million deaths. Worship power, you're going to end up feeling weak. And afraid. In fact, you'll need more and more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you're going to end up feeling stupid, like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I hope they don't realize how little I really do know. But once we're at the marriage feast of the Lamb, <laughs> all the worship will be focused on the King, no longer on me. No longer on you. It, no longer on me and my me things. And, and you know what? It'll finally all make sense. And it's going to be amazing. And it's going to be satisfying. And it's going to be joy-filled. And it will be completely complete. I don't know how else to say that other than completely complete. That's because the reality is that there's only one around whom all worship has ever or should center around. And you know who it is? It's the triune God. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here at this marriage feast of the Lamb, it's there that all things are restored to their proper order. And God is, is rightly honored as God by heavenly beings, but also by us saints by both, regardless of status. It, it should be when understanding the story of history, the story of your life, by the way, and my life is ultimately culminating there at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. It should be that everything in our earthly lives, including our unwanted suffering and, and most definitely our worship, whatever that might be at this time, should be focused on Jesus so that it becomes actually a rehearsal 
for that heavenly stage. In other words, what we do is, is we rehearse by centering our lives, our living, our working, even our resting, our, our, our loving on worshiping the God who deserves any and all of our worship by owning the ordinary things of our lives. That's because ultimately it's always been about God's story, not mine and not yours. Then we get to verses 6 to 10. And we see that the king, by the way, we as disciples of Jesus Christ are all monarchists because we serve a king. And our king Jesus, the bridegroom, reigns with glory over the marriage supper of the lamb. Listen to this, verses 6 and 10. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. See, it is always about God. Worship always is given to God. Only God deserves all the worship. No one else, no matter how great they may look. Marriage Supper of the Lamb, the final union of the Son of God and the people of God in glory forever is, church, the climax of that all of redemptive history has been moving toward through a history of time. But did you notice what it says about us? About us, the church? It says she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, you might read this, and at first blush, uh, it looks like the fine linen is a result of the, of the righteous acts or the good works that we've done. But the truth is that even this brings God glory. Because we not only do these things by his power, the Spirit's power, but he also provided them for us to do in the first place. And, and, and as a result, nobody should boast. God gets the glory. Because as Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, by the way, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God will be glorified by what he has done through what we've done. And it makes sense. But this also, I think, speaks to the completion of the verse that Paul shares with us. Remember that there's a verse in, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where it says that, that he who started a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, the sanctification of our lives, the transformation of us into the image of Jesus is at this place, now here. It's now completed. We are now pure just as Jesus is pure. We are perfected just as Jesus is perfect. Hearkening back to the words of Gandalf, now the days of the king. This is the day of Christ Jesus, the King. And we're now complete and so ready to meet the bridegroom. I mean, just imagine every righteous act that God has empowered us to do by every believer, every day and every moment of of our sanctification while on this earth, the perseverance of our lives to follow Jesus Christ finally come together here and they culminate in this beautiful 
gown as the bride is presented at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And church, she's going to be beautiful. What we might think the church is incomplete in today. We might say all the warts and the pimples and the, and the messed up teeth and the, and the pettiness and the, and the grumpiness that she might portray today. When she gets there, us, the church, it's going to be beautiful. Beautiful. And that's guaranteed, church. Because as John said in 1 John 3, when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. I don't know about you. I can't wait. I cannot wait. Hmm. But still, there's a question. What about those who refuse the invitation to the marriage feast of the Lamb? You might want to stick your fingers into Matthew 22 as well. I'm going to pop in there a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole uh, passage there, but... Uh, I'll give you some context. It's a parable about a wedding feast. Unlike most wedding feasts, however, this one involves a king and a, and a son. My, mine didn't have a king in ours. Um, I certainly was a son, but not the son of a king. But in this one, there was a king, there was a son, there were some cantankerous invitees, cold-blooded murder, the destruction of cities, and a ragtag group of afterthought of guests. So, Sounds like a success for, or a a setup for success, or not. Most surprising of all is the end of the story, though. After all the guests have assembled, the king spots a man without a wedding garment, and, and he orders that he be shown the door. Actually, his words are much more severe. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 22. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that's pretty heavy duty. I think. Granted, this ending adds some narrative kick to the parable, I think, but is but I, I think is there more to that that Jesus wants us to see, maybe? Okay, well, I think it would help if we kind of retrace our steps just a little bit. This parable, by the way, is the third installment in a series of rebukes directed toward the Jewish leaders. Now, in the context, Jesus has been teaching in the temple following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The chief priests and elders, rankled by his his popularity with the people, interrupt his discourse, and they demand that he give one good reason why he has the right to open up his mouth in their turf. This is their territory, after all. You shouldn't be allowed in here. So in response to their bad manners, which it really was, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders in Matthew 21, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. He was not looking to make friends, obviously, was he? This prediction is illustrated in our parable as the original invited guests, representing the chief priests, by the way, and the Pharisees, lose their place at the royal feast. They got it. They understood what Jesus is, is, is saying to them. The king then sends his servants to invite anyone else who will come. Servants do just that. And Matthew notes that the newly invited guests are a motley crew made up of, he says in verse 22, verse 10, they're made up of both bad and good. Okay, So it's a mess. It's a a mixed up group. The king finds a man at this feast now. All of a sudden he looks out and he's not wearing a wedding garment. Everybody's been given a wedding garment. He's not wearing it. Now, in that culture, a wedding garment would be, have been a nice set of clothes used for special occasions, uh, much like somebody would wear a tuxedo at a black tie event. If this is the case, then the guest without a wedding garment in this scenario would be 
than an underdressed attendee. So the closest picture I think we can give for our own context here in this world is much like a man appearing at a funeral in a Speedo and flip-flops. I mean, the gesture would be offensive, wouldn't it? It would be obvious, and it would have been a sign that this guest is oblivious to the significance of this invitation. This explains, I think, the king's quick action, and he brings us back to the point of the parable. It's this. The wedding feast is an open invitation, but there is a dress code. Or another way of saying it is that everyone's welcome at the table, but understand that the table changes our clothes. Another way of saying that is it changes us. And if it doesn't, then we aren't truly guests. We're wedding crashers, and and then we don't belong there. From this parable, I think Jesus wants us to see three things. First, first, the gates of the kingdom are wide open. Salvation isn't based on ethnicity, on education, on income bracket, on popularity, ministry position, personality type, cultural savvy, athletic ability, attractiveness, or even how good I think I am. Nothing to do with that. Secondly, though the gates of the kingdom are are open wide, the kingdom still has gates. and, And we need to go through them. And on top of that, as you go through the gates, there's a dress code. In the words of Paul speaking to the Colossians, we must uh, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, which, by the way, can only be done by wearing the cloak of Jesus' righteousness because we can't do it on our own. Jesus has to give us that heart. This means, by the way, that a bitter and unforgiving heart is as much out of line for the Christian as a speedo-wearing, flip-flopping funeral-goer. Really. The most important thing for anyone to consider is whether they will be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the important question. To make sure that they have a seat with their name on it, they have to have the right dress code. The wonderful news, by the way, is that you can be sure you're one of the guests by trusting Christ's gift of salvation through a simple faith in him and his gracious work on the cross that paid for the sins of all those who believe. And in doing so, putting on fine linen, bright and pure, his cloak of righteousness. Get the clothes for the occasion by coming to Jesus. Put on your hands and he will give them to you. Listen, if you want to more, know more about making sure you have a seat at the table with your name on it, I'd love you to uh, come and talk to me or Bryce or the person who invited you here tonight. And we'd love to talk to you about making that a reality. <laughs> Finally, and... and 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 we mustn't miss this point. The third thing I think Jesus is teaching us here is that the kingdom of God is a feast. And and I think we should really act like it. What I mean by that is that God wants to be enjoyed. He's the God of laughter and and, and full bellies and second helpings. In his presence, says David, there is a fullness of joy. Church, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, listen, for you who have committed your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, there already is a seat there with your name on it, which means that when we gather, whether it's in our homes or, or um, uh, around our dinner tables or, for that matter, even at McDonald's eating a, 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 a McMuffin or at the keg enjoying a great steak or in the church around the Lord's table, we should then begin to see more and more the marriage supper of the Lamb being experienced to a small degree already. This is where we are putting it to practice so that we're really good when we get there. (laughs) We have a glorious king exalted to heaven's throne. 
We have a coming champion who will enact true justice. Guess what? He's going to end all wars, every single war, even the personal battles you're struggling with yourself right now. Not just the battles in the world. Even now in our church here today and in our lives every day, might we truly welcome the days of the king. Jesus Christ is the hope of all the earth, the bridegroom forevermore, the joy of every longing heart.